Section Two of the Golden Scarecrow by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Cynthia Moyer. Chapter One, Henry Fitzgeorge Strether. Part One. March Square is not very far from Hyde Park Corner in London Town. Behind the whir and rattle of the traffic it stands, spacious and cool, and very old, muffled by the little streets that guard it, happily unconscious, you would suppose, that there were any in all the world so unfortunate as to have less than five thousand a year for their support. Perhaps a hundred years ago March Square might boast of such superior ignorance, but fashions change to prevent it may be our own too easily irritated monotonies and for some time now the square has been compelled here there in one corner and another to admit the invader it is true that the solemn respectable grey house number three can boast that it is the town residence of his grace the duke of crawl and his beautiful young duchess nay miss jane tunster of new york city but it is also true that number blank is in the possession of mr munty ross of potted shrimp fame and there are dr cruthen the mrs dent herbert hoskins and his wife whose incomes are certainly nearer to five hundred pounds than five thousand pounds yes rents and blue blood have come down in march square it is certainly not the less interesting for that but some of the houses can boast the days of good queen anne for their period there is one at the very corner where summers street turns off towards the park that was built only yesterday and has about it some air of shame a furtive embarrassment that it will lose very speedily there is no house that can claim beauty and yet the square as a whole has a fine charm something that age and color haphazard adventure space and quiet have all helped towards there is perhaps no square in london that clings so tenaciously to any sign or symbol of old london that motor-cars and the increase of speed have not utterly destroyed all the oldest london mendicants find their way at different hours of the week up and down the square there is i believe no other square in london where musicians are permitted on monday morning there is the blind man with the black patch over one eye he has an organ a very old one with a painted picture of the battle of trafalgar on the front of it and he wears an old black skull-cap he wheezes out his old tunes they are older than other tunes that march square hears and so perhaps march square loves them he goes despondently 
and the tap of his stick sounds all the way round the square. A small and dirty boy, his grandson maybe, pushes the organ for him. On Tuesday there comes the remnants of a German band, remnants because now there are only the cornet, the flute, and the trumpet. Sadly wind-blown, drunken, and diseased they are, and the square can remember when there were a number of them, hale and hearty young fellows, but drink and competition have been too strong for them. On Wednesdays there is sometimes a lady who sings ballads in a voice that can only be described as that contradiction in terms a shrill contralto. Her notes are very piercing, and can be heard from one end of the square to the other. She sings Annie Laurie and Robin Adair, and wears a battered hat of black straw. On Thursday there is a handsome Italian with a barrel organ that bears in its belly the very latest and most popular tunes. It is on Thursday that the square learns the music of the moment. Thus, from one end of the year to the other, does it keep pace with the movement. On Fridays there is a lean and ragged man, wearing large and, to the children of the square, terrifying spectacles. He is a very gloomy fellow, and sings hymn-tunes, Rock of Ages, there is a happy land, and Jerusalem the golden. On Saturdays there is a stout, happy little man with a harp. He has white hair and looks like a retired colonel. He cannot play the harp very much, but he is quite the most popular visitor of the week, and must be very rich indeed, does he receive in other squares so handsome a reward for his melody as this one bestows. He is known as Colonel Harry. In and out of these regular visitors there are, of course, many others. There is a dark, sinister man with a harmonium and a shivering monkey on a chain. There is an Italian woman wearing bright wraps round her head, and she has a cage of birds who tell fortunes. There is a horsey, stable-bred, ferret-like man with two performing dogs, and there is quite an old lady in a black bonnet and shawl who sings duets with her granddaughter, a young thing of some fifty summers. There can be nothing in the world more charming than the way the square receives its friends. Let it number amongst its guests a duchess. That is no reason why it should scorn Colonel Harry or Mouldy Jim, the singer of hymns. Scorn, indeed, cannot be found within its grey walls, soft grey, soft green, soft white and blue. In these colours is the square's body clothed, no anger in its mild eyes, nor contempt anywhere at its heart. The square is proud, and is proud with reason, of its garden. It is not a large garden as London gardens go. It has in its centre a fountain, 
Neptune, with a fine wreath of seaweed about his middle, blowing water through his conch. There are two statues, the one of a general who fought in the Indian mutiny and afterwards lived and died in the square, the other of a mid-Victorian philanthropist whose stout figure and urbane self-satisfaction, as portrayed by the sculptor, bear witness to an easy conscience and an unimaginative mind. There is, round and about the fountain, a lovely green lawn, and there are many overhanging trees and shady corners. An air of peace the garden breathes, and that, although children are forever racing up and down it, shattering the stillness of the air with their cries, rivaling the bells of St. Matthew's round the corner with their piercing notes. But it is the quality of the square that nothing can take from it its peace, nothing temper its tranquillity. In the heat of the days, motor-cars will rattle through, bells will ring, all the bustle of a frantic world invade its security. For a moment it submits, but in the evening hour, when the colours are being washed from the sky, and the moon, apricot-tinted, is rising slowly through the smoke, March Square sinks, with a little sigh, back into her peace again. The modern world has not yet touched her, nor ever shall. Part Two The Duchess of Kroll had three months ago a son, Henry Fitzgeorge, Marquis of Strether. Very fortunate that the first-born should be a son, very fortunate also that the first-born should be one of the healthiest, liveliest, merriest babies that it has ever been any one's good fortune to encounter. All smiles, chuckles, and amiability is Henry Fitzgeorge. He is determined that all shall be well. His birth was for a little time the sensation of the square. Everyone knew the beautiful Duchess. They had seen her drive, they had seen her walk, they had seen her in the picture papers, at race meetings, and coming away from fashionable weddings. The word went round day by day as to his health. He was watched when he came out in his perambulator, and there was gossip as to his appearance and behaviour. A jolly little fellow, just like his father. Rather early to say that, isn't it? Well, I don't know. Got the same smile. His mother's rather languid. Beautiful woman, though. Oh, lovely! Upon a certain afternoon in March, about four o'clock, there was quite a gathering of persons in Henry Fitzgeorge's nursery. There was his mother, with those two great friends of hers, Lady Emily Blanchard and the Honourable Mrs. Vavasour. There was Her Grace's mother, Mrs. P. Tunster, an enormously stout lady. There was Miss Helen Crasper, who was staying in the house. These people were gathered at the end of the cot, and they looked down upon Henry Fitzgeorge, 
and he lay upon his back, gazed at them thoughtfully, and clenched and unclenched his fat hands. Opposite his cot were some very wide windows, and three windows were filled with galleons of cloud, fat, bolster, swelling vessels, white, save where, in their curving sails, they had caught a faint radiance from the hidden sun. In fine procession against the blue, they passed along. Very faint and muffled, there came up from the square the lingering notes of Robin Adair. This is a Wednesday afternoon, and it is the lady with the black straw hat who is singing. The nursery has white walls. It is filled with color. The fire blazes with a yellow-red gleam that rises and falls across the shining floor. "'I brought him a rattle, Jane, dear,' said Mrs. Tunster, shaking in the air a thing of coral and silver. "'He's got several, of course, but I guess you'll go a long way before you find anything cuter. It's too pretty, said Lady Emily. Too lovely, said the Honourable Mrs. Vavasour. The Duchess looked down upon her son. Isn't he old, she said, thousands of years. You'd think he was laughing at the lot of us. Mrs. Tunster shook her head, now don't you go imagining things jane my dear i used to be just like that and your father would say now alice her grace raised her head her eyes were a little tired she looked from her son to the clouds and then back again to her son she was remembering her own early days the rich glowing color of her own american country the freedom the space, the honesty. "'I guess you're tired, dear,' said her mother. "'With the party tonight and all, why don't you go and rest a bit?' "'His eyes are old. He does despise us all.' Lady Emily, who believed in personal comfort and as little thinking as possible, put her arm through her friends. "'Come along and give us some tea.' He's a dear. Good-bye, you little darling. He is a pet. There, did you see him smiling? You darling! Tea I must have, Jane dear, at once. You go on. I'm coming. Ring for it. Tell Hunter. I'll be with you in two minutes, mother. Mrs. Tunster left her rattle in the nurse's hands. Then, with the two others, departed. Outside the nursery door, she said in an American whisper, Jane isn't quite right yet, went about a bit too soon. She's headstrong, she always has been, doesn't do for her to think too much. Her grace was alone now with her son and heir, and the nurse. She bent over the cot and smiled upon Henry Fitzgeorge. He smiled back at her, and even gave an absent-minded crow. But his gaze almost instantly swung back again to the window, through which, 
deeply and with solemn absorption he watched the clouds she gave him her hand and he closed his fingers about one of hers but even that grasp was abstracted as though he were not thinking of her at all but was simply behaving like a gentleman i don't believe he's realized me a bit nurse she said turning away from the cot well your grace they always take time it's early days but what's he thinking of all the time oh just nothing your grace i don't believe it's nothing he's trying to settle things this what it's all about what he's got to do about it it may be so your grace all babies are like that at first his eyes are so old so grave he's a jolly little fellow your grace he's very little trouble isn't he less trouble than any baby i've ever had to do with got his grace's happy temperament if i may say so yes the mother laughed she crossed over to the window and looked down that poor woman singing down there how awful he'll be going down to crawl very shortly roberts splendid air for him there but the square's cheerful he likes the garden doesn't he oh yes your grace all the children and the fountain but he's a happy baby i should say he'd like anything for a moment longer she looked down into the square the discordant voice was giving annie laurie to the world good-bye darling she stepped forward shook the silver and coral rattle see what granny's given you she left it lying near his hand and with a little sigh, was gone. Part Three Now, as the sun was setting, the clouds had broken into little pink bubbles lying idly here and there upon the sky. Higher, near the top of the window, they were large pink cushions, three fat ones lying sedately against the blue. During three months now, Henry Fitzgeorge Strether had been confronted with the new scene, the new urgency on his part to respond to it. At first he had refused absolutely to make any response. Behind him, around him, above him, below him, were still the old conditions. But they were the old conditions viewed for some reason unknown to him at a distance and at a distance that was ever increasing with every day something here in this new and preposterous world struck his attention and with every fresh lure he was drawn more certainly from his old consciousness at first he had simply rebelled then very slowly his curiosity had begun to stir it had stirred at first through food and touch very pleasant this very pleasant that milk sleep light things that he could hold very tightly with his hands 
now upon this march afternoon he watched the pink clouds with a more intent gaze than he had given to them before their colour and shape bore some reference to the life that he had left they were like a little to those other things there too shadowed against the wall was his friend his friend now the last link with everything that he knew at first during the first week he had demanded again and again to be taken back and always he had been told to wait to wait and see what was going to happen so long as his friend was there he knew that he was not completely abandoned and that this was only a temporary business with its strange limiting circumstances the way that one was tied and bound the embarrassment of finding that all one's old means of communication were here useless how desperate indeed would it have been had his friend not been there reassuring pervading him surrounding him always subduing those sudden inexplicable alarms he would demand when are we going to leave all this wait i know it seems absurd to you but it's commanded you well but this is ridiculous where are all my old powers where are all the others you will understand everything one day i'm afraid you're very uncomfortable you will be less so as time passes indeed very soon you will be very happy well i'm doing my best to be cheerful but you won't leave me not so long as you want me you'll stay until we go back again you'll never go back again never no across the light the nurse advanced she took him in her arms for a moment turned his pillows then laid him down again as he settled down into comfort he saw his friend huge a great shadow mingling with the colored lights of the flaming sky all the world was lit the white room glowed a pleasant smell was in his nostrils where are all the others they would like to share this pleasant moment and i would warn them about the unpleasant ones they are coming some of them i am with them as i am with you swinging across the square were the evening bells of st matthew's henry fitzgeorge smiled then chuckled then dozed into a pleasant sleep part four asleep awake it had been for the most part the same to him he swung easily lazily upon the clouds warmth and light surrounded him a part of him his toes perhaps would be suddenly cold then he would cry or he would strike his head against the side of his cot and it would hurt and so then he would cry again but these tears would not be tears of grief 
but simply declarations of astonishment and wonder. He did not, of course, realize that as, very slowly, very gradually, he began to understand the terms and conditions of his new life, so, with the same gradation, his friend was expressed in those terms. Slowly that great shadow filled the room, took on human shape, until at last it would be only thus that he would appear. But Henry would not realize the change. Soon he would not know that it had ever been otherwise. Dimly, out of chaos, the world was being made for him. There a square of color, here something round and hard that was cool to touch, now a gleaming rod that ran high into the air, now a shape very soft and warm against which it was pleasant to lean. The clouds, the sweep of dim color, the vast horizons of that other world yielded day by day to little concrete things. A patch of carpet, the leg of a chair, the shadow of the fire, clouds beyond the window, buttons on someone's clothes, the rails of his cot. Then there were voices, the touch of hands, someone's soft hair, someone who sang little songs to him. He woke early one morning and realized the rattle that his grandmother had given to him. He suddenly realized it. He grasped the handle of it with his hand and found this cool and pleasant to touch. He then, by accident, made it tinkle, and instantly the prettiest noise replied to him. He shook it more lustily, and the response was louder. He was, it seemed, master of this charming thing, and could force it to do what he wished. He appealed to his friend. Was not this a charming thing that he had found? He waved it and chuckled and crowed, and then his toes, sticking out beyond the bedclothes, were nipped by the cold so that he hallowed loudly. Perhaps the rattle had nipped his toes. He did not know, but he would cry because that eased his feelings. That morning there came with his grandmother and mother a silly young woman who had, it was supposed, a great way with babies. I adore babies, she said. We understand one another in the most wonderful way. Henry Fitzgeorge looked at her as she leaned over the cot and made faces at him. Goo-goo-gum-goo, she cried. What is all this? he asked his friend. He laid down the rattle and felt suddenly lonely and unhappy. Little pet, ugla-la-goulosh. Henry Fitzgeorge raised his eyes. His friend was a long, long way away. His eyes grew cold with contempt. He hated this thing that made the noises and closed out the light. He opened his eyes, 
he was about to burst into one of his most abandoned roars when his stare encountered his mother. Her eyes were watching him, and they had in them a glow and radiance that gave him a warm feeling of companionship. I know, they seemed to say, what you are thinking of. I agree with all that you are feeling about her. Only don't cry. She really isn't worth it. His mouth slowly closed then to thank her for her assistance. He raised the rattle and shook it at her. His eyes never left her face. Little darling, said the lady friend, but nevertheless disappointed. Lift him up, Jane. I'd like to see him in your arms. But she shook her head. She moved away from the cot. Something so precious had been in that smile of her son's that she would not risk any rebuff. Henry Fitzgeorge gave the strange lady one last look of disgust. If that comes again, I'll bite it he said to his friend. When these visitors had departed, he lay there remembering those eyes that had looked into his. All that day he remembered them, and it may be that his friend, as he watched, sighed because the time for launching him had now come, that one more soul had passed from his sheltering arms out into the high road of fine adventures. How easily they forget, how readily they forget, how eagerly they fling the pack of their old world from off their shoulders. He had seen, perhaps, so many go thus lustily upon their way, and then how many, at the end of it all, tired, worn, beaten to their very shadows, had he received at the end. But it was so. This day was to see Henry Fitzgeorge's assertions of his independence, the hour when this life was to close, so definitely, so securely, the doors upon that other had come. The shadow that had been so vast that it had filled the room the square, the world, was drawn now into small and human size. Henry Fitzgeorge was never again to look so old. Part 5 As the fine, dim afternoon was closing, he was allowed, for half an hour before sleep, to sprawl upon the carpet in front of the fire. He had with him his rattle and a large bear which he stroked because it was comfortable. He had no personal feeling about it. His mother came in. Let me have him for half an hour, nurse. Come back in half an hour's time. The nurse left them. Henry Fitzgeorge did not look at his mother. He had the bear in his arms and was feeling it, and in his mind the warmth from the flickering, jumping flame and the soft, friendly submission of the fur beneath his fingers were part of the same mystery. 
his mother had been motoring her cheeks were flushed and her dark clothes heightened by their contrast her color she knelt down on the carpet and then with her hands folded on her lap watched her son he rolled the bear over and over he poked it he banged its head upon the ground then he was tired with it and took up the rattle then he was tired of that and he looked across at his mother and chuckled his mind however was not at all concentrated upon her he felt on this afternoon a new a fresh interest in things the carpet before him was a vast country and he did not propose to explore it but sucking his thumb stroking the bear's coat feeling the firelight upon his face he felt that now something would occur he had realized that there was much to explore and that after all perhaps there might be more in this strange condition of things than he had only a little time ago considered possible it was then that he looked up and saw hanging round his mother's neck a gold chain this was a long chain hanging right down to her lap as it hung there very slowly it swayed from side to side and as it swayed the firelight caught it and it gleamed and was splashed with light his eyes as he watched grew rounder and rounder he had never seen anything so wonderful he put down the rattle crawled with great difficulty because of his long clothes onto his knees and sat staring his thumb in his mouth his mother stayed watching him he pointed his finger crowing come and fetch it she said he tumbled forward onto his nose and then lay there with his face raised a little watching it she did not move at all but knelt with her hands straight out upon her knees and the chain with its large gold rings like flaming eyes swung from hand to hand then he tried to move forward his whole soul in his gaze he would raise a hand towards the treasure and then because that upset his balance he would fall but at once he would be up again he moved a little and breathed little gasps of pleasure she bent forward to him his hand was outstretched his eyes went up and meeting hers instantly the chain was forgotten that recognition that they had given him before was there now with a scramble and a lurch desperate heedless in its risks he was in his mother's lap then he crowed he crowed for all the world to hear because now at last he had become its citizen was there not then from someone disregarded and forgotten at that moment a sigh lighter than the air itself half ironic 
half-wistful regret. End of chapter 1